Hello and welcome to the PWGC Environmental Echo. I'm your host, Paul Boyce, President and CEO of PW Grocer. And today we've got another interesting topic for our listeners. It's, well, you may not think it's interesting, but you're going to find out that it really is. And that's the legal perspectives on the environment. And we've got a terrific guest today from Feral Fritz. We've got a partner at the, at the law firm. It's Christopher Kent from the, from the east end of Long Island. Chris, he started out, well, he's, as I mentioned, he's a partner at Feral Fritz. That fo- and he focuses his attention on uh, issues related to real estate, land use. Uh, municipal law and zoning law. Prior to joining Feral Fritz, he served as Suffolk County's Director of Real Property Acquisition and Management, and later on as Chief Deputy County Executive, which I did not know that. That's interesting, Chris. Most recently, Chris has played a, a key role in the development of uh, solar power installations on Long Island's East End. Uh, again, it was a topic we were just talking about in another recent podcast, you know, solar. He serves on the Board of Directors for the Hopog Industrial Association, the HIA, YMCA of Long Island, and the Long Island Association's Energy Environment Committee. Yeah, quite impressive. And also joining me with, with Chris is one of our senior vice presidents who heads our environmental, or not our, our engineering unit, rather, Brian Grogan, PE. Uh, I want to thank both of you guys for joining me today. And why don't we just dive right into this topic? Um, Chris, welcome. Appreciate you, you joining thank us. Thank you. You know, as I said, that's uh, quite an impressive career you've, you've, you've already had, and I'm sure it's going to be more to come out of you. We're looking forward to that. Um, what we'd like to talk about is, as we said, you know, some different legal perspectives on the environment here in the, in the, in the region. Um, and, and I know you've been involved in, in real estate on Long Island for a number of years. As, as I mentioned, we've, been, we've had the, 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 the honor of working on a couple of projects with you. But over that time, you know, what are the environmental issues that you believe that really define the region here in Long Island? Well, in Suffolk County, I mean, the biggest uh, issue has been the fact that we uh, live on top of our aquifer. So we are drinking the water that we live upon. So it's really important to control what you do on the surface uh, in order to protect the groundwater and to protect the surface waters, which we're surrounded by. Uh, I mean, we live on an island. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're surrounded by the Long Island Sound to the north, the bay uh, to the east, to uh, Peconic Bay, which is completely surrounded by the North Fork and the South Fork. Uh, we have the Great South Bay. Uh, we have the... Uh, a lot of rivers and creeks that flow into the bays and and then we have the Atlantic Ocean to the south which is only buffered by the Fire Island so um, it's really important uh, that development uh, is conscious of the fact that we live on top of the groundwater and the water that we drink and develop in a way that protects the groundwater um, so the biggest issue that I've been involved with pretty much my entire career which started in 1981 when I first uh, came out to uh, eastern Long Island, has been uh, sewers. Suffolk County was completely under-sewered. Um, a lot of the wastewater, you would, uh, would flush your toilets, uh, would go right into cesspools that would leach into the ground without any treatment. And early on, when I was first uh, working on development, there weren't even septic tanks. So you had issues where people were flushing their toilets and the waste would go right into a leaching uh, ring, a cesspool, and would then end up into the, into the groundwater where the only filtration would be the sandy soil um, prior to reaching the aquifer. So uh, we've progressed quite a bit since then. Um, when I first came here, the Southwest Sewer District was a project that was underway. Unfortunately, at that time, it was considered a boondoggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of uh, negativity about developing a sewer district and a sewage treatment plant. 
Uh, there was a lot of uh, inappropriate things going on between contractors and uh, other people that I don't want to get into, but it left a bad taste in people's mouth. Uh, people started questioning whether we could build sewage treatment plants in sewer districts uh, uh, without having any type of corruption. So uh, we did get to that point fairly quickly. People understood that how environmentally important it was to have uh, sewer districts and treatment of wastewater prior to being discharged to ground or discharged to surface waters. And um, so a lot of development has occurred. More development is required. And uh, the funding, unfortunately, hasn't been as much as it used to be for the development of sewer districts. Uh, there used to be a lot of federal funding involved, a lot of state funding involved, and then a very small portion was by the, the county and the local municipalities. That has changed over the years. So you have the environmental benefits for developing sewer districts and sewage treatment plants weighed against the financial cost, and you don't want to overtax people. Recently, fortunately, the state has put up a lot of money, uh, provided the Suffolk County with a lot of money to develop more sewer districts and more sewage treatment plants because they believe the benefits uh, far outweigh the cost so and I, I agree with that so as far as private development goes um, many of the projects I work on uh, have a sewage treatment plant component to the project and either they're going to build an on-site sewage treatment plant or what we call a private construct a construction of a private sewage treatment plant or connect to a municipal sewage treatment plant whether it's the the county, uh, one of the county sewer districts, which there are several. Brian probably knows exactly how many there are off the oh, top of his he head. He could probably drive to everyone in each, each and every one right now. He knows them that well. And there's also quite a few towns that have uh, sewer districts. Uh, Riverhead was way ahead of its time. They built their sewers back in the 1930s. Greenport has its own uh, sewer district and sewage treatment plant. And some of the other towns, Brookhaven has a couple of plants. But it's very important uh, that we treat our wastewater before we discharge to ground and before we discharge the surface waters because the impact of discharging untreated waste far out uh, is, is such a detriment to the environment that it, it's just more beneficial to spend the money and get the proper treatment before discharging the wastewater. You, you brought up some really good points right out of the gate on topics that were really near and dear to PWGC and stuff that we've, you know, we've already had the opportunity to speak about in past podcasts which i think this is great it's all tying it together you know you brought up the wastewater aspect and, and long island being a sole source aquifer you know everything we do is on top of our our, our our incredible resource our drinking water you know and not enough people i think truly appreciate that or even really understand what's what's going on and, and how it's all related and how you know the things we do at the surface can really have an effect on you know um, our future supply of water, you know, I mean, well into the future, you know, the sins of the past, it's going to take quite a while to catch up with, you know, not having sewers out here in Suffolk County. And as we've continued to develop and develop and develop, and you mentioned the Southwest Sewer District, and, you know, there was a little bit of political scandal with that and how that really left a bad taste in people's mouths and how we've been so afraid to, to, to go back to trying to, to sewer the county and, and, and really make an impact on what we're doing in terms of nitrogen and wastewater and how that's all getting down there. Um, it's just been, you know, an, an incredible, you know, way to start. And I, and I appreciate that because I, I couldn't agree with you more as, you know, 
the groundwater, wastewater, surface water, that being, you know, one of the real germane issues here as far as en environmental issues and how it relates to the, the region as a whole. You know? then, you get, then you get into the, uh, the areas that really can't be sewered economically. That's correct. So then you, you have to develop, and the, the county has been out in front of this for a number of years now, coming up with on, what we call on-site sanitary systems, where you're not connected to any pipe that takes the wastewater off-site. You have to figure out how to best treat it on-site with a small sanitary system that services just that lot. And they also are doing more of, uh, I think they're doing some sanitary systems that might treat multiple lots. Uh, Brian probably knows more about that. But the county has been right out front, and, um, and there are systems available. I know we, we call them IA systems. Yep, that's correct. Innovative alternative uh, wastewater systems. And some people are, are complaining about the cost. And, again, I always bring it up to my clients when we're doing a project. It's worth it because the cleanup uh, of something discharged uh, without being treated is going to cost you a lot more than treating your wastewater, your effluent, and discharging it to ground uh, with more surety, with more certainty that it won't cause a problem to the drinking water. It's funny, the people, will, the people who complain the loudest sometimes about the costs of doing it right are the people who will immediately complain when something goes wrong. So it's better to spend the money, do it right, and uh, hopefully avoid uh, things going bad. Yeah. Well, and, and to, to further that, you know, you, I know if you've worked on a variety of with a variety of municipalities on, on all different types of projects, but um, some of those clients involved the development of like you know public wastewater infrastructure, and when we just touched on a little bit of you know some of the obstacles. To, to pushing this stuff through and, and and have those obstacles changed since the southwest sewer district to today i mean what are real the, the hurdles that are preventing us from getting this done but you know obviously cost is a biggie but what else is really driving that well absolutely i think it has changed um the mindset uh, there's been enough educational uh, efforts made to provide information to the public that how important it is to protect our sole source aquifer how important it is to protect our surface waters, our rivers, our streams, so that we can have we can go fishing <laughs> without worrying about catching a fish that's contaminated, or we can do other things. You know, uh, you don't want the algal blooms. Uh, we've had the uh, brown tide out in the Peconic Bay. You have the red tide up in Northport Harbor. There's all sorts of uh, environmental consequences that occur as a result of not respecting your environment. So. I think there's been enough education. I think it's gone into the school system. So the people who are, who are coming of age now are much more aware uh, than the people were, you know, I'm 62 years old. I don't mind saying it on a podcast. I mean, 40 years ago when I started doing all of this, um, it was very difficult. But there are people now, the younger, the next generation is very aware and the generation after that will be even more aware. What, what do you think spurred that awareness? It was effort, really. It was effort by all the... Uh, organiza environmental organizations that get involved from the Nature Conservancy and the Peconic Land Trust and the Sierra Club and all these organizations that put out information about not damaging our environment, protecting endangered species, 
doing things the right way that will not harm the planet that we live on. And I think today's the uh, the next generation, I mean, Brian's probably the next generation for me, and then even the next generation <laughs> after that, I think are completely aware and realize that they don't want to inherit a, a planet that is being just that is either in the midst of being destroyed or has already been completely impacted by the prior generations, the development and the advancements made by prior generations. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not criticizing the prior generations and I'm not criticizing the development and progress that occurred over the last 150 years. I'm just saying that where we, from where we are today, in order to continue the progress, the continue the advancement, we can develop strategies and technology and development uh, elements that can protect the planet while advancing development. So, and I definitely believe you can do both. And I'm really a strong advocate for my prior positions going way back to the 1980s for preservation of open space, preservation of farmland, and developing where you should develop. So rather than taking a green site and developing a big project, take a site that's previously been developed and redevelop it with some sense, with some good planning. You can create greater density if you provide connection to sewers, if you provide uh, advanced uh, energy concepts, advanced environmental concepts. You can develop where development belongs and preserve and protect what should be preserved and protected which is farmland, open space, wetlands, uh, habitat for endangered species, all of that can be done while you develop what should be developed. It takes a little planning, but it's much easier to do it on paper than to build it and try to fix it afterwards. Uh, you can say that again. I mean, we've, we've looked at, you know, if we were able to, as I've said this before, wave a wand and all of a sudden, all of Suffolk County is magically sewered overnight, you know. We've already got enough nitrogen in, in the ground that it's going to take decades for it to fully work its way out and stop being a problem, you know. But yeah. there's no time like the present than this, this to start doing that. Um, and it's just, you know, w I see more and more of an appetite to move that forward, you know, politically, um, just with the residents of Suffolk County. You know, I, I think that the, the surge or the tide is, is it's growing here. Brian, you have anything yeah. you want to share on that? No, so, I mean, two things. I mean, one is I think the, the younger generation like myself and even I look at my kids are seeing, I say, some of the repercussions of what Chris is talking about. You know, the algal blooms, whether it's on Long Island or even in Florida. I mean, you look at the red tides in Florida where, you know, you can't necessarily go outside without getting impacted and you can't breathe. Or you're seeing that, you know, we had that couple, tide a couple of years ago that basically turned everything into pea soup. You had manatees and fish dying in record numbers. Um, you know, I think Florida just changed fishing regulations where it's catch and release only now for certain fish species in areas that are impacted. You're seeing it, and it's impacting quality of life. Um, like Chris said, you know, it, there is a cost to it, and you need to do it right. And a lot of the reason people come to Long Island is to enjoy the natural beauty that we have here. So if you're not going to protect the water and the beach that you're going to sit on, in the summer what are you you know what are you really doing um you know and then you know going back to some of the obstacles that i think we face right now aside from cost is space you know we look at you know and we've been in touch with a number of villages or, or smaller downtown areas and 
and Chris can elaborate on some of this, but you look at, you know, Village of Southampton, the, the town of, you know, the hamlet of Montauk, Hampton Bays. These are areas that are developed, not developed to the max, but developed. And if you're trying to retrofit sewer infrastructure in there, the biggest thing that comes up is, well, where do you put the treatment facility? And nine times out of ten, it's nowhere near where you're actually trying to sewer. Um, so I think something like that where you have to take the, the pre-planning steps and, you know, work with those municipalities on where do they own property? Where, you know, make sure they, they maintain that property. They don't sell it off for, you know, budgetary reasons or otherwise. Um, or work with a developer that's willing to oversize a treatment plant that's going in near town or something like that. And make a connection from some of the municipal areas or from the downtown area to kind of help spur that, you know, that redevelopment and that growth. Um, because on, on Long Island, we're, we're limited in redevelopment based upon the health department regulations without sewers. So until we can kind of get sewers everywhere, you may have a downtown that struggles a little bit, um, or you have an empty storefront that's always going to be a retail and you can't get, say, apartments up on second and third floors or change it to a restaurant use or whatever, or even just a, a medical office becomes a, a hard sell sometimes. Um, so I think, you know, part of that is if we can work together as a community between our developers, our county, our municipalities, and kind of come to a, a mutual agreement, I think there's a lot of good to be had there. Um, yeah, I think it's important that people understand that the, what you propose to use the property for will have a different amount of wastewater flow. It's called design standards from the health department. So I don't wanna to get too deep into the weeds in that, but <laughs> if you want if you want a restaurant, they calculate it by seats, how many yep, seats you have yep, in the yep. restaurant. So to make a, a, a restaurant successful financially, you need to maximize the number of seats. But you know, at the same time, you're gonna have, for every seat, you're gonna have a certain amount of flow of wastewater that's calculated by the government, by the health department, and you're gonna to have to meet the demand of how many seats based on the number of seats you have, the wastewater demand. Same with medical office is a higher demand of weight, generates more wastewater than a regular office. Retail generates the least amount of uh, wastewater flow. So, and we know what's happening with retail these days. Nobody's going to buy, uh, go downtown to buy things. They're staying at home and having it delivered. But uh, hopefully that turns back around because I think people like the walking downtowns. Yeah. And in order to revitalize a downtown, as Brian is saying, you really need to be connected to sewer uh, because you can create a much more dense downtown. And I don't mean dense in a but people always have give it a negative connotation. Uh, always, yes. But I mean, you wanna have multiple users, using properties, existing buildings, if you, if you can, retrofit an existing building, put multiple users in there, put some re residential above uh, first floor retail or first floor commercial. Because then you, what you do by doing that, by creating these residential spaces above first floor commercial, you're creating consumers. You're creating people who will be walking on the street and buying the products or eating in the restaurants or visiting the retail store, the drug store, the dry cleaners, the bagel shop, the coffee shop. Those people who live there would rather walk out their front door and walk down the street than go get in their car and drive to a mall. They would rather be there. And I think the younger generation, the next generation is really latching on to that. I know my kids would much rather go out the door, walk two blocks and get what they want than get in their car and drive somewhere. 
and you know, I know my generation, we were more car, we were more tied to our cars, <laughs> but I think the next generation, and I talk about this with people sometimes, and you know, the older people, my friends of mine, they're like, yeah, I don't know, Chris, it'll never happen. People aren't gonna give up their cars. And I will say, well, maybe you won't give up your car, but I bet your son or your grandson or your granddaughter, or you know, they, they're more likely to. They, they would they're not not opposed the, the, to it the tide's turning it's coming you know and you guys you, you've kind of both led into like my next topic which was the the environment and the economy you know and you, you really did a good job of tying it together but a lot of times people perceive it as being mutually exclusive when in reality you, I, 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 improvements to the environment like we were just discussing are going to improve the economy um, you know how do we convince people that don't necessarily believe that that that's the case I guess sometimes the proof is in the pudding but just getting to the pudding is tough. Yeah. So going back again, I, I this started, I would say, in the 1980s, there was a really big push to understand that at least for the east end of Long Island, the environment was the economy. The reason people go to the east end of Long Island is because they like open space. They like the beach. They like the bay. They want to go out on their boat. They want to go surfing. They yeah. want to... The vineyards, the farms. The all vineyards, the, fun- the farms. That's what draws them. Yeah. Um, tourism to the on the east end of Long Island is drawn. The tourism, the the positive results or the positive impacts of tourism, is directly affected by the environment, because the people like the open space. They like the preserved farmland. They like the vistas. They want to drive down Sound Avenue or they want to drive down a back road in the Hamptons and not see a lot of development and they want to be able to go places. But at the same time, they want to be able to go into a, a nearby downtown area, go to a restaurant, walk around the village of East Hampton, walk around the village of Southampton, go into Sag Harbor and, you know, have a stroll and get something to eat. And that's what people, so the economy on the East end of Long Island is directly tied to the environment. Other places, I think the economy is tied to reuse of existing development. When you get into Nassau County and Western Suffolk, you have a lot of development on Route 110, Mm -hmm. Route 110 corridor, Melville, where we are today. It's very tied to taking what's already been developed and retrofitting it or redeveloping it to, for another use. And people have been very good at it. I mean, this is now, Frequently, unfortunately, um, remediation is required before you reuse it. Mm-hmm. And reme- remediation is the result of somebody inappropriately discharging something to the ground or bringing something onto the site that shouldn't have been brought onto the site. And then you have somebody coming in who wants to reuse the property and they can't right away until there's some type of a remediation plan so that it can be developed. And depending on the sensitivity of the reuse. I mean, we know if we wanted to put a nursery school or residential, you want that site to be almost pristine. You want to, you know, remediate it to the highest level because you don't want people to be getting sick from what was there before. Green fields and brown fields, you know, that's something at PW Grocer we are heavily involved with and it's something I can really relate to. I'm trying to, I'm trying to lead you right into this. (laughs) Oh, you're too good to us, Chris, thank you. But uh, no, I'm, I, I, I'm speaking from experience. I've, like I said, I've been doing this, I've been involved in this since 1981, and I, it's a long time, and I, it's been a lot of progress. And now when we talked about progress over the last 150 years, it was constantly, 
how to progress the economy, how to grow industry, how to, and what we've gotten better at over the last, I want to say since 1971, I think that was the first Earth Day, we've gotten into how can you do both? How can you create progress? How can you progress the economy while respecting the environment? And that's what it's about. It's about good planning, developing good technology, how you can do something without having the negative impacts. And uh, I know PW Grocer is right there thinking no, that through. We, we are, and I appreciate that. And that's really what this a lot of our podcasts are all about. It's, you know, not so much the promotion but uh, of, of the firm, but just, you know, getting the word out there that, you know, we've got to take care of this place, this, this planet, our region, our communities. You know, we only get one shot at this, you know, and, and the longer we ignore that, the more difficult it's going to be to, to get back to, you know, a sustainable future. So before I change the subject, because uh, I got a, definitely a topic I'm dying to talk to you about, Brian, you have anything you want to add on the, on the wastewater as- aspects or? Well, I, I mean, I think I got a, a good, pay me a good segue to your next topic, but I'll see. Um, you know, I mean, y- you talk about that and, and economy and industry and redevelopment, you know my mind goes to a spot that Chris knows very well is the Hobog Industrial Park. So there we've got existing, you know, it's an existing industrial area. There was a small sewage treatment plant there. The counties have recently expanded it and is kind of going on and sewering that entire industrial development. Now, again, industrial flows are not always the highest use, but there's a lot of buildings there. Um, I don't know the number of square f- millions of square feet of space over there, but there's a lot of key players in the local Long Island industry. There's a lot of pharmaceuticals, a lot of manufacturing work. We do work for a lot of the tenants in that space. Um, and, you know, there's there's a drive there to push for sewer infrastructure so those facilities can more readily expand or adapt to new tenants coming into buildings. Um, and they've even gone extra steps. I mean, the, you know, there's been numerous presentations on how they're – connecting solar panels on all the flat roofs out there that they're trying to you know put them in to generate power for themselves or for the grid um i know that's an ongoing discussion and continues to work and chris can kind of lead into that a little bit more but you know that's the kind of reuse of what you're looking at and what you have and rather than say put solar farms on empty fields or um you know you know vacant lots you know, you look at things like, you know, could you put them on roofs of buildings, parking lots? I mean, the county went around years ago and put solar on a number of county facilities in the parking lots. You know, you're looking at this impervious open space that we have on the island and saying, well, how can we make it better and make it better for everybody? Um, so I think that kind of, you know, that kind of development and, you know, is what we really need to look at moving forward. So that's a good thing you brought up. You know, if you mind, I'll segue into that for a minute. The solar carport. That was what I was, we were going to go right into solar for you. So by all means. <laughs> okay. So the, um, that was really the lead on that was the, uh, was the electric company. So elect, they came out with what they call the feed in tariff program. Okay. So what that was, was a, a subsidy that they were willing to provide. They were willing to pay a higher price per kilowatt generated from renewable sources. So it was called a feed-in tariff. So they, they, they had a little add-in so that if you were going to develop, they were really looking to develop renewable uh, generation of power from renewable sources. So the first program was called feed-in tariff one or fit one. And they came, we, we as a county, this was when I was, uh, and you guys probably didn't know this, but the, I was, when I was the director of real, real 
property acquisition and yeah, management, yeah. Um, we came up with an idea as a county that we could offer land to a company that would want to partner with us to build the solar carports. So we entered into an agreement and they put in a proposal and they put up solar carports on t county owned parking lots at train stations and at the county centers in Central Islip and in Riverhead. And uh, we put up, I, don't know, I think it was seven locations and a bunch of train stations and um, uh, Deer Park, H. Lee Denison Building, the North County Complex, County Center, the Central Islip Courthouses. Those are all properties we identified uh, as available parking lots there where you could put up solar carports. And that was a winning bid. They, they were awarded the bid and they paid the county um, rent to rent the land so that they could put up the solar carports. So if you look at it, it was revenue to the yeah, county. So win-win. <laughs> revenue to the county. Yeah. The solar developer who people always like say, well, how much are they going to make? Well, they're, they're taking the risk too. So... That, that's where that's where I kind of when these when people I, I kind of look at it from a broad perspective you have to look at it in all from all different directions and that's why I mean I've been in the government I've been an environmental attorney I've been a, a, a business attorney for people who are trying to make investments there's ways to do it all where everybody gets a benefit and that's kind of the strategy that we have to take to protect the environment you have to give the people who are willing to take the risk and invest in the programs and the development of those types of things that are going to protect the environment, they have to get a return. And if they don't get a return on their investment, they're not gonna make the investment. So I frequently go and speak to towns, I present projects and I try to explain, th this is the benefit you've identified that you want. And this is the company that's willing to give you that benefit. But at the same time, they want to return on their investment. So I was very happy that the uh, electric company came in. I think the first feed-in tariff program was paying 22 cents a kilowatt. It's gotten more and more and more competitive, and I think they're down to the 16. So the, wow. the, the solar projects yeah. that are being built now are coming in. They pencil. Now you bid it in, and you put a price of what you'll sell the power for. And the, the companies are now coming in between like 16 and 17 cents it's less than 17 more than 16 it's in that neighborhood and it's all based on the developer who's telling what kind of return they need on their investment the margins are small and it takes a lot of time to receive your return on yeah. investment payback because sure. your upfront is very high and that's why they need what's called pilot payments payment in lieu of taxes because at the beginning, it's very hard for them to be financially secure on their project. And over time, they will be able to pay more taxes. So you, it's not like they're paying more, they're paying five times, six times, sometimes 10 times more in taxes on that property than was being paid prior to their development. By the end of the project, they're paying 15 times. So they get that little abatement at the beginning and it increases. It keeps escalating. Huh? It keeps escalating. At the end of the project, you're paying a lot of money. And their return goes down because most of these projects lose some of their capacity over time. They become less efficient unless you change out panels and technology, yeah, which is also a cost. More money, right. Right. So I try to explain this to groups. And when I do go to Civic, I get invited to come speak at Civic organizations. And 
they think they're going to attack me and they're going to go after me. But by the end of the night, they're thanking me and they're telling me we didn't understand it. So and they're getting the message. But now we oh, do. But now we <laughs> do understand it. And it, it's important to look at it from everybody's perspective because we're, we really are. And I, I know it's a cliche, but we are all in this together. Yeah. Okay. Say it, said it before in the podcast. We, uh, it's one planet. You <laughs> yes. Know, whether so or not you think that. You it's <laughs> so we got to get rid of the, not get rid of them, but we have to be cautious of the over striving developer who's looking to do more than should be done on a piece of property, who's looking to get more return than they should be. I mean, there's an old expression in the, in the legal field that's very legal technical. Pigs eat, hogs get slaughtered. They teach us that in law school, by the way. That's one of the courses you take. No, but you, <laughs> you, you learn. You gotta go for what you can get. I mean, you, you, what makes sense. And don't try to get more than that because you're probably not gonna end up, you'll end up with nothing. So if you try to get too much, you get nothing. If you try to get the right amount, if you're willing to listen and to have interaction with communities and with municipalities and understand the impacts of your project and understand what needs to be done to reduce your impacts yeah, and to take into consideration wastewater and electricity and uh, uh, you know, quality of life, you can have a very successful project. You can get a great rate of return uh, but you got to understand what impact you're producing and not try to not have your impacts outweigh the benefits. I mean, do you, do you ever get involved with selling the project on it's, it's getting us off the fossil fuels and the, the, the greenhouse gas emissions and lowering the carbon footprint, whether it's for the county or for, for whoever? Yeah, I, um, it's funny. I, I've done quite a few projects and mostly ground mounted. I have done some rooftop solar and I will get into that in a minute with the HIA because I think it's a great project yeah and they're trying to use utilize something called community solar which is where people buy in and you develop it not on your property but you're you're an investor basically and you get the benefit partial benefit of the community solar project and it makes a great sense uh makes great common sense because you build the project where it belongs and then you have everybody participate uh and from the benefit side and it's multi-benefits you get the financial benefit as being a an, uh, an investor in the community solar project or a participant or a subscri subscriber there's a, a, you know there's a name for it I'm, sometimes i'm really good on the concept but not so good on the uh on the, what what's the latest vocabulary on this, some of these <laughs> projects but i'm a real good on the uh, on the concept of it the policy behind it but um, so you, that that's what's going on hia they are putting it on rooftops some are strictly for that property owner's use and that property owner's benefit. There's also going to be the opportunity to do community solar where multiple property owners can benefit. You can build the project where it belongs. And there are a, a number of uh, companies, the Sun Nation is one of them that I know is working a lot in HIA. So this, this can happen. And um, just, again, people with a little bit of an idea, a uh, way to structure it so that they benefit financially from it but at the same time there's tremendous benefit to the people who are receiving it and there's tremendous benefit to the community and there's a way to structure almost any project uh, any proposal where you realize what sh could be done and not have too much impact upon the community where it's being done you just you know that was my last question i was going to ask you know are you seeing companies and corporations you know 
taking a greater role in this climate-friendly infrastructure, and that was a great example with the HIA. Yes, they're doing a tremendous job of uh, doing environmentally sound uh, infrastructure and, um, and at the same time benefiting them financially and also benefiting our whole region because it's going to reduce our reliance, our dependence on fossil fuel plants. Are you seeing any other projects like that regionally? Nassau, Suffolk, East End, anything? Well, the ground-mounted projects um, on industrial land, um, I think, work. If there was some preference given or benefit given to companies who are willing to add an environmental component to their project, I, uh, you know, some type of a leader or whatever you want to call it, if you gave them some type of a preference or some type of a, a kicker that allowed them even more than what they might have gotten otherwise, but at the same time, they were being very environmentally sound. I mean, we do that with green roofs now, yeah. and we do it with uh, LEED uh, certification buildings, and we do it with toilets that have less water flow. These are all things that when you add them all together and you could build a project which really has less impact, it could be, it could be analyzed more on its impact than on its how many units you have mm -hmm. or you know, how tall is your building. Or, you know, we get, if we could get away from building, analyzing everything on a square foot basis and getting more into, okay, they're willing to incorporate into their project all of these environmentally sound components and I think you should be able to get more density as a result we're getting there I think we're getting there um, I think the IA systems is a, is a good start um, because you're not going to be able to sewer let's go back to it you're not going to be able to sewer no. every place it's, in Suffolk County be next to impossible I know I agree and I don't think we'd want to because the, the cost and, and just the, the infrastructure to do so just it's uh, almost unattainable well if it started when you lay the sewer pipe to get the return on the investment of the sewer pipe, you're gonna want more people to connect, which means more development. Yep. So there are places where you don't want to do that. You wanna leave it where you have a sanitary system and you then do. you <laughs> have a, a, a mile away another sanitary. <laughs> I mean, there's, th and then there's, there's places like Shelter Island, which yes. they, they are partially sewered, but if we proposed running a sewer pipe over to Shelter Island, you know, no. it, it would never happen. So there's ways to address that though. And it's all comes from smart people, engineers, uh, architects, people who design, people who do site plan layouts, uh, people who do infrastructure, sanitary system detail on um, plans. There's ways to minimize the impact of a project and allow the project to move forward without a tremendous a detriment to any community. But it, it takes dialogue, it takes thoughtful people on both sides, uh, not both, more than both, on all sides, okay? Um, and you can end up with a really good project. Also, what I try to, to put out to communities is where are the next jobs coming from? You know, you got kids who are growing up and they want to stay here and they want to work and they want to live here, but you know, they, they want to do certain things. It's funny. And the next, I don't know what, if we want to call them millennials, but they're very, which I like, they, they want the quality of life. I mean, the, the generation before me was about sacrifice, uh, about working hard 
for your kids, you know, for your family to make the money and support people. And you would do anything. Okay. You'd work two jobs, three jobs. Mm-hmm. People are getting away from that a little bit, I think. And I, in a good way, I'm not, you know, I'm still unfortunately tied to this. I got to work a lot of hours cause I have a lot of people that I got to support and help. And I think the younger generation for, for all the right reasons is saying, Hey, wait a minute. I don't want to work that much. I don't, I don't want to work. I just, I don't want to live to work. I, I want to just work so that I can live my life. And we need to find those right jobs. We need to have the jobs with that, you know, that fit what we want to do. And I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities if we continue to progress the way we're progressing, where you're identifying what technologies can be done, get people involved in working on those thoughts. You know, you need thought leaders to move this forward. Um, and get, getting people doing the right things, I, I, I think there's hope for our planet. <laughs> I, I agree, I like the optimism. Um, I, before we close, I do wanna, I just wanna go off the menu here a little bit, because okay. you've been very insightful. The solar stuff, just that was mind blowing. I really, really enjoyed hearing about that hop hog industrialist. I didn't know about that. Yeah. But um, there's a couple of big wind projects on the horizon for Long Island. Are you involved in any no of those? No pun intended on the horizon, right? You didn't mean <laughs> No, no, you caught me. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's, um, you know, and I've been talking to a couple people. I was at the uh, League of Conservation Voters Gala the other night, and um, you know, obviously it's a lot of big energy companies and sustainability, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about it, a lot of chatter, and, you know, where they're going to land these cables and things like that. Um, have you had any involvement with any of that stuff or any thoughts on it? Um, we, we as a firm have been representing two of the big offshore wind projects. Um, my involvement has been more on the, uh, where are we going to locate the easements for the underground cables? Yep. Um, I do know some about, uh, I know some of the places, I don't know if I should be discussing it <laughs> because there are some towns that are opposing yeah, the, I, the I idea. Yeah, I don't want to, yeah, we're familiar, anyone. Chris. I, yeah. I know which ones you're probably talking yeah. about. Right. It's funny. It's the same town that was the first one to adopt the resolution about how they were going to reduce their carbon footprint and they were going to be uh, 100% uh, self-sustaining with renewable energy, who's done nothing for renewable energy to this point. Um, and where other towns like uh, Riverhead that has allowed tremendous amount of solar to be developed, yep. they're probably, and I, I don't know the facts on this, I don't have it any written down, but they're gonna be somewhere around 100 megawatts of solar generation in their town. And it's funny, because people are trying to, I would be shouting that from the rooftops, not no pun intended on the solar yeah, rooftop. Yeah, there we go again. But I would be out there saying we are the most, they might be one of the, uh, maybe the highest town in the state of New York for for generation of power from solar. Um, and I think they should be patting themselves on the back and taking all the kudos they be could. Be an example for others, yeah. yeah. I would be inviting the, uh, you know, the, the, the leaders of the state to come down and give them an award because if anybody followed the uh, clean energy study uh, recommendations i think riverhead was one of the first uh, to to follow it now i know we have p- tremendous wind projects upstate new york yep um and i've been to those because i represented the company that when they came down here they were looking to and they showed me their projects upstate um was it loudonville or somewhere up there in upstate new york north country as i call it um but um so as far as the wind projects here we are 
Long Island is a little more concerned about what they see than what they get, unfortunately, in the, when it comes to wind. And they don't want to see the wind, so it's very far offshore. Yeah. And, um, but it's going to be brought in by a submarine cable, and it's going to hit land, and then it's going to have to travel underground for the most part. I know some places will allow overhead, but most people want it underground, and it's going to reach uh, a substation at some point. And again, I don't want to get into the, too much of the details because there's some meetings and litigation. Yeah, there's and still a long way to go <laughs> to work it out, but <laughs> I'm, I'm actually gonna... excited about it. You know, the, the, the offshore, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same group. I really don't want to see it. I'm a surfer. I love the beach. I'm always down there. You know, how would that affect my whole, you know, I see these great big spinning turbines, you know, uh, but I've got to realize, just like I said in a, in a previous podcast, I drive a big jacked up truck that you know hemi engines spewing all sorts of carbon emissions you know eventually i gotta go electric one of these years right yes and it's gonna be a hard sell but it's the same thing with offshore wind it's a hard sell but we gotta get there yeah it's got to be one of the uh it's funny somebody at one time and i'm not going to go into names because people get a i don't know they don't i don't want them to misunderstand me um somebody said are you more in favor of solar wind farms uh you know battery storage and somebody the answer was all of the above all right because we do need it we need yeah. to, we need to be sensible we need to tie battery storage to solar generation we need to you know create so that you could store it during peak demand and i mean during off peak and have it available during peak demand it's it's, it's important and um we just got to make sure everybody understands it and there's some people who will never be in favor of it they want to be tied to fossil fuels and they mm-hmm. want to say, I don't want to change what I've relied upon for the last 50 years and we should, we'll never get there and we'll never be able to do this and it'll be so expensive. Well, it'll be a lot more expensive to fix the ozone layer. <laughs> if, without a doubt, if it's fixable, right? Yes. Ho- hopefully we can undo what we've done, as I said, the sins of the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Chris, I, I, I want to thank you. Brian, Chris, do you guys have any closing thoughts before we wrap up the podcast today? No, I mean, you know, I think one thing that Chris touched on that I think we see in our field is, again, this kind of mutual understanding of the environment and development. And we see it a lot with some of our newer clients for site plants and secrets. And while we're working through these processes, we have clients coming to us saying, okay, well, we'll put solar on the roof. We're going to put in a treatment plant mm-hmm. when maybe we don't necessarily have to. Um, so they're taking that step and they're, they're actively working on mitigation measures. And, and again, that ties into a lot of what Chris is saying, you know, with solar panels and battery backup. And, you know, I listen to my father who works for the electric company talk about, you know, distribution of electric over summer peak periods and how every once in a while they get close. And, you know, the more we can have here so that you have redundancy and you have some stuff where your peak load is picked up by batteries generated from solar rather than firing up an old world war ii diesel generator is a good thing you know (laughs) um you know and i think that's something that's really going to kind of push us forward on long island i think we need to look at it more and kind of keep that going because again as chris said the education even on the public side when you're speaking at planning board events and, and talking to the community and environmental groups we're starting to find more common ground now it's no longer really an us versus them. It's how do you make it better? How do you tweak it just a little bit to get it that extra 10% better? It's it's not adversarial anymore. It's kind of more of a, 
here's what we're thinking. Is there any way we can make this a little better? And everybody seems to get along and understands it now. And there's less questioning of, well, is that really going to work? They know it works and you have the backup for it. So I think that's a, a big driver moving forward for us. Yeah, bringing up those peaker plants is kind of like when you start up your Hemi truck. Oh, the yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, uh, I'm not attacking you. No, no, I, I'm attacking <laughs> myself. You know, eventually I got to come to grips with it. You know, no, those peaker I, plants have got to go. Yeah, so does my truck, huh? Oh, God. <laughs> well, guys, I, I do want to thank you again. We had Chris Kent from Feral Fritz, uh, a partner at the law firm, and Brian Grogan from PWGC. Uh, today's topic, again, was the legal perspectives on the environment. I hope our listeners, you guys, found it as fascinating and enjoyable as I did. Again, I am Paul Boyce, CEO and President of PWGC, the host of PWGC's Environmental Echo. I I do thank you again for listening, and if you guys have any questions, comments, or thoughts that you want to share with us, please reach out to us at pwgrocer.com backslash podcast, and we'll be sure to get back to you. Or if you have topics you want to talk about for upcoming podcasts or potential guests, we're we're always open to listen. And uh, I, I do thank you for your time today, and I hope you enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul.